Well, good morning. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of First Peter. We're in chapter 1 together, and we're looking at a, a great letter Peter writes to the early church in the midst of adversity in which they are going through, and we're using it as a source of encouragement for our lives. We're calling this series All In, and we're recognizing that in, in our world, in our lives, that Jesus has gone in all in for us. And he's really given us the opportunity to respond by going all in for him. And what does that look like? And especially in moments of adversity, how do we pursue after God? You know, if you're like me, I've got kids. And as a parent, one of the things that, that you're concerned about is is the, the, the hard times that your kids might go through and you not being able to be there to, to walk them through those circumstances circumstances. You know, we can't always be there for everything that our children endure and everything that our children go through. But one of the things that we have as parents is an opportunity to prepare them for what life might bring. And when you look at first Peter chapter one, this is exactly why Peter is writing this letter. Remember in the very beginning, first couple of verses, he lists out these areas that he is writing this message towards specifically. But as we know, truth always transcends still relevant for us today. And the area in which he's writing this letter is to the area of Turkey, modern day Turkey. Turkey. And for, for us, we also recognize in this letter that Peter's most likely writing it from Rome. So he's not physically present with them, but he wants to prepare them for what they're about to face because in the early church, they're now enduring uh, persecution. Peter's about to be uh, crucified upside down for his faith by Nero. And, and history even records by uh, Clement of Alexandria that Peter's wife uh, was crucified for her faith. And so Peter understands the adversity that they're going through. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, uh, Peter acknowledges that adversity. If you read those verses, uh, it just says to us, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in the praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So while Peter's going through adversity, he recognizes so the early church is going through adversity. And though Peter isn't there physically with them to walk it through through them in this moment, he writes this letter in anticipation and preparation for their faith in Christ and being faithful to him in their circumstances. And we, we look at this passage today and that's exactly what we want to talk about is how can we be prepared in our problems? We don't want to seek after problems and we, we don't want to certainly run right into them. But nonetheless, when we live life from day to day, you're going to face them. And how can we be prepared for that adversity? In First Peter chapter 1, this is where Peter starts for us in verse 13. He's describing for us how to live that life faithfully in the midst of our circumstances. And I believe this, that even in adversity, it is possible for us to go through hard things as people and come out stronger and better for it. How can we do that? How can we experience that? How can we find this kind of faith in our lives? Well, if you want just an example, even the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, when John writes the, the, the book of Revelation, he talks about the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, and both of them going through adversity, and both of them stronger in their faith because of that. So when you think about your circumstance, and maybe even this, particularly in this coronavirus that we're facing, uh, it's not about just looking for things 
to get back to normal. But rather we could ask the question I believe is, God, in the midst of this circumstance, how can my faith grow stronger? How can we be prepared for these problems? And, and because of the adversity, find our faith strengthened in these moments. And I believe that in, in the circumstance of the first century, Peter is facing the same challenge and he's answering it in the same way. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, this is where Peter starts his argument all the way to verse 16. And he says this, prepare for who God calls you to be. Peter's desire for us in verse 13 is prepare for who God calls us to be. And this idea of, of preparation, I'll read this verse in just a moment, but he uses this word prepare. And this idea of pre- preparation is not just simply preparing for something in the future, but it's this ongoing preparation, even in this moment right now. That God doesn't want you to do something now in anticipation of something in the future, but rather to understand your spiritual journey as it takes place right now in relationship with him. Prepare for who God calls you to be. You can't always control your circumstances, but you can determine how you will respond. And in verse 13, this is what Peter says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, prepare your mind. And we recognize in scripture, when we read that word, therefore, you've got to back up to understand exactly why Peter's saying what he is saying. And I think this is important for us as believers to understand what Peter's about to call us to is action. But before God ever calls us to action, it's always built on the understanding identity of who this God is. God calls us to action based on him and his, uh, his identity for us. This radical living for Jesus is established through the understanding of who our God is. And so he's saying based on that understanding, we love because he loves. Therefore, Serve God out of the goodness of who he is. Prepare your minds for action. Prepare for who God calls you to be. How does this preparation happen? He talks about both your mind and your spirit here. Take time to build into that, right? You're going to see in verse 14... So many people, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed in the former lust, which were yours in the ignorance. Meaning, when he thinks about the world, Peter's saying, so many people just live for the passion of the day. Whatever makes them happy, right? That they, they make that about their pursuit, but not God's people. God's people, they, they, they pour into their spirit and into their mind. Therefore, based on the goodness of who God is, that's what he's saying in verses 3 to 12. If you go back and look at everything that Peter has said there, he talks about the resurrection power of God in verse 3, and, and, and he goes on to show how God has given his life for us. And, and then he says to us, you have this precious faith in verse 5 and 6. And in verse 10 to, to 12, he says that God's foretold this to the prophets, and even the angels long to look in this. It's so incredible to see how God has worked his story together for you, your life. And then based on that, living in these circumstances today, therefore, prepare your mind and your spirit. Let your life be saturated in the goodness of who this God is. He's saying, think about the target for which you will live now and anticipate it. Don't live in verse 14 simply for the moment, but think about who God has called you to be and prepare your mind for that and keep this sober spirit. What he's saying is, allow your heart to grow in the clarity and conviction of who God has called you to be in him. Who, prepare for who 
God calls you to be. And every once in a while, with, as a parent, when I drive around with my kids, a lot of times in our van, um, and yes, I drive a minivan, but a lot of times when I'm driving around, uh, uh, things can be rambunctious in, in a van with three boys. Um, but every once in a while, we get to that contemplative state where they, they look around to their circumstances and, and they start to stress a little bit sometimes about being a grown-up. They'll see how their parents navigate through this area and they do certain responsibilities while kids are in the van going around. And they start thinking about how are they ever going to do that when they grow up, right? They start worrying about what it's going to look like. And as a parent, I always remind them of the same thing. We're more interested in who you're called to be rather than we are in what you're called to do. My kids sometimes will get fixated on what they're supposed to do as a grown-up. They're not ready to be a grown-up, right? But my responsibility as a parent isn't to dictate to them what. My, my interest primarily becomes in the who. Because if we can speak into their heart and get them to align their character with who God calls them to be, the what will take care of itself. And this is exactly what Peter's saying in, in chapter 1 of verse 13. This idea of who, this preparation, and this anticipation now of your identity in Christ. That, that you can't always control your circumstances, but you can, you can uh, determine how you respond. And how you respond is central to who you are. One of my favorite pleasures of being a Christian is that Christians are thinkers. Verse 14, he says that the world lives in the lust of the moment and the passion of the day, but not the believer. Not the believer. In verse 13, he says this, the preparation of your mind and the building into your spirit, the identity of who you are, because if you build into who you are, it will determine what you do. If you take care of the who, (laughs) the rest will align with itself. Christians are thinkers. I mean, the first Peter chapter three, verse 15, we've, we've shared this together that this is our focus verse of this, this book of the Bible, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. Why do you do what you do? Christians are the ones that take a step back and and look at the broad biblical picture and try to adjust to the circumstances around them based on what scripture says about them and them being a light in the world around them. Therefore, based on the goodness of who this God is, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying is this is our target. You think about your target and the target ultimately becomes then setting your hope on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. When a believer looks to Christ, we do so with great anticipation. Uh, I can tell you over the last couple of weeks, the questions as a pastor that I have fielded more than any other, and everything seems to be related to the book of Revelation. <laughs> get all kinds of phone calls over the last few weeks of how I, I look at the world around me, what's going on today in anticipation of what scripture says about uh, the, these last days. And believers want to know how to respond to this. What do we, we spaz out? Do we, what do we, what's, what's supposed to be our actions to life around us? I mean, we've had earthquakes and coronaviruses and some of our nations been destroyed by tornadoes. What do you do about this, right? 
Well, scripture makes it clear for us in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 27. Listen to this. God says this about believers, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. To the believer, because of everything that Jesus represents for us, it tells us in the midst of adversity, we don't walk with tails tucked and heads down, but rather we lift up our heads in anticipation of the coming of Christ because we know the great glory that awaits us. But the life of the unbeliever, it says in Revelation 6, 16, uh, and they, unbelievers, said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. God is our target. We look to him, the revelation that's coming in Christ with hope. And in verse 14 to 16, it tells us, it tells us what this target looks like. Listen to this. It says in verse 14, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what does it look like when I prepare my mind and, and my spirit and I have this great hope of anticipation of the coming of Christ? One word, he says in verse 14 to 16. The who you are is one who is holy. God calls you to be holy. And sometimes when we think about what this word represents, we do so, I think, from an unbiblical religious perspective, right? And what I mean is when I ask people, okay, so what is a, what is a definition of holy? Some people would describe holiness like this. It's either not sinning or, or that's the opposite. Like it's, it's holiness is, is this idea of being good. And so, um, being unholy would be sinning. And so therefore holiness, you could describe as, as not sinning or being good. And I would say, um, that's a part of it. But if you make that the primary definition of holiness, you can altogether f- miss the significance of what holiness is about. Holiness is not merely about being good or, or, or not being bad. He does talk about in this passage, verse 14, um, as obedient children. So you definitely see being obedient. In verse 15, at the end of it, he says, um, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. So there's definitely this idea of, of good or not good. But the problem with just simply making holiness about being good and, and not being bad is that you don't need God. And he is the, the primary means for which this holiness is intended to, uh, to come from, the source of holiness. Holiness is the setting apart of something altogether different. Yes, it may look like being good and not being bad. It, could, it, it will resemble the goodness of God in this world. But it's to recognize that God has called us to something altogether other than what this world offers. It's this distinction of you from everything else. It's this separation, this calling out. It's the saying, I have a completely different identity than anything this world offers. That's holiness. It's the setting apart in our lives. It's about who God calls us to be. You know, I think about this idea of church. Some people, some people come to church for sort of this self-help seminar to become a better you. 
But Jesus' goal isn't primarily about you becoming a better you. It's about losing yourself altogether in order to grab a hold of him. And so we think about this, this picture of holiness. It's about separating ourselves from, uh, from everything else this world offers and understanding what Jesus has called us to is something altogether different. And therefore, we prepare our minds and our spirits to step into that and live in light of that in this world. It's about who God calls us to be. In reality, when we think about holiness, without a love for God, a pursuit of holiness will be out of guilt or pride, not a delight in him. It'll come from a guilt of thinking you need to be better because you're not good enough or this pride of thinking that you're something great and altogether miss what the picture of holiness is about in recognizing that it's Jesus who pursued us. You think about Jesus in John chapter 15, verse five, it says, uh, abide in him and you will bear much fruit. The goal of a holy life isn't about bearing fruit. Our goal in a holy life is about abiding in him. The natural result of that will be bearing fruit. So you think walking in this world, what does God call us to be? It's about walking with this mentality of preparing our lives to be other or different in him, both mind and spirit, focused on the goodness of this God because God has called me to something more in this world. And it's about recognizing the beauty of who he is in my life. And as I abide in him and the love he's demonstrated to me, the result, the natural outflow of that is fruit. Who am I? Paul continues to build that that case through all of 1 Peter, but that is where the target is for us. That's what the target looks like. It's about this idea of holiness. Prepare yourself for who God calls you to be. Second is this. Determine why you want to be really who God calls you to be. Why? Why do you want to be this? And in verse 17, he he says it to us like this. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. What he's recognizing for us is we're going to give authority to something in our lives. You'll worship something. You'll be about something. You'll lay your life down to something. You'll sacrifice for something. You'll give time and resources to something. What is that something? It will determine who you are becoming. So what Peter's saying is, in a world that's pressuring you to conform you to its image, rather than being conformed to its image, and verse 14 it says, don't be conformed. Rather than being conformed to the world's image, be conformed to God's image. How do you do that? It's got to be the thing that you revere most in life. Actually, the only thing that shapes you in life. Revering Him in your world. You cannot live a holy life, the life that God calls you to without completely surrendering your life to Christ alone. So when you think about the target of who God calls you to be in being holy, you will never attain to that calling without the surrendering of yourself and reverence to the Lord. In Peter's day, you can imagine that the Christians have all sorts of temptation around them to conform, even 
even physical force, people are trying to get them to abandon their God. And he's saying, don't fear them. Instead, let your fear be in the Lord. Revere him above all else. And then he tells us why, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here's why. Because what Jesus offers is precious. So in verse 18, he compares this to the things of this world that people might consider precious from your forefathers. But God's really not interested in your pedigree. In fact, it doesn't impress the king who has everything that he wants. God's interested in you, right? And in verse 19, Peter's compelling us in the reverence of the Lord by recognizing not not to guilt you, not to shame you, but to focus on the preciousness for what you have in Jesus. This precious blood in Christ. I heard an illustration once by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I changed it just a little bit to kind of fit our, our modern day. But, but if you think about the significance of how something so precious inspires you to pursue and to love in response, right? Suppose you had, for a moment, a friend that was visiting you and you had not felt well for a few days. And all of a sudden you're up and about doing some kind of menial chore in your home while your friend is visiting and you become lightheaded. You, you pass out, you hit your head, and all of a sudden when you come to, you need stitches. And so your friend loads you up in, in their car and good thing that they were there to help you in that time of need. And they drive you to the hospital and you get some stitches and you're thankful to your friend, right? They just happen to be there and you really appreciate how precious that was. But suppose while you're at the hospital, you come to find out that the doctors want to do tests because you hadn't been feeling well for a few days and you passed out and that's just not normal. And so they, they do this test on you and they find out that the reason you passed out was because your kidneys are failing. And in fact, it's so serious that you've got maybe just less than two days to live. And while you're at that hospital, that friend who brought you there decides, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and get tested to see if one of my kidneys can be donated to you. Come to find out, you find out that that same day while you're still at the hospital that they are a match. And, and before you leave, the surgeon happens to be there and they perform a miraculous surgery and, and they give you one of your friend's kidneys and now it ends up saving your life. What kind of appreciation do you have for that friend? You walked in that hospital not knowing a dead man. And they give of their very life in order to spare yours. The words you might share with that friend or the expression I should say you might have with that friend would be more than just words. You would say maybe to them I am utterly devoted to you. What could I ever do to repay you for something that you've done so precious for me? And I think this is exactly what Peter is saying to us in the recognition of Jesus. Is it's more than just this earthly gift that he's provided for us in verse 18. But something far greater than that because this, this impacts all of eternity. And he's given his very life by laying himself on the cross that you might find life in him. And how are you to respond in a moment like this? Are you just simply to say words like thank you and just leave it empty? Right? 
Or do you with your life respond back? God, thank you. Thank you for your love. How could I ever repay? How do we respond and prepare our lives for these problems? One, prepare who you are, right? The mind and the spirit in Christ. And never forget in verse 17, why? Because it's the precious blood of this lamb that was poured out for you. And finally, in verse 22, he then shares with us to to strive fervently and faithfully in this. And in verse 22 is all I'm going to read. We're going to pick up with really the second half of preparing ourselves and problems next week. But in, in, in verse 22, he says this, Since you have, in obedience to truth, purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Since you have purified your soul, fervently love. This this purified is an imperative, meaning it's not something that you did, meaning you purified your soul in the truth. It, it, it It involves something that you did, but it also involves something that you continue to do. You're refined in this identity in Christ. Because his precious life is continually offered to you as you are made new in him. And so therefore the result of of looking towards this target is continuing to purify your soul in sincere love for the brother. Fervently loving one another from a heart. This idea of fervently loving is to understand it's not always going to be easy. But you're devoted to this because of everything that Jesus has done for you. How do we strive, therefore? It tells us to keep loving each other. When we're wholly given over to Christ, it's demonstrated through a life of love. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about, this is the love chapter. And And he says in the very beginning, that if we have the tongue of men and angels, but if we have not love, we're we're a sounding gong or an empty symbol. If we have all the wisdom and all the prophetic utterances in the world, faith is to move mountains, but have not love. We're empty. If we give everything that we have and we give our bodies over to be burned, but have not love, it's useless. Meaning a holiness to God isn't this simply intellectual ascent. Holiness to God is a life-transforming power that compels us to love others because of the love of Jesus that's been demonstrated in our lives. Love one another. A dedication to the Lord will always lead to a love for others, even an enemy. Maybe we could even say especially for our enemies. Because when we look at the love of Christ, we recognize that our lives are even enemies towards him. That's why he had to give himself for us.
Peter is saying is so important for the life of the believer. Because what it's demonstrating is a person that's not allowing their circumstance to dictate who God has called them to be. They're prepared for their problems. Because they've already determined, even before the problem arises, the kind of person they're, they're going to be. And even in those circumstances that are adverse, they continue to be refined in that identity. And they know why they're that person. Because of the precious blood of Christ. It's given them entirely new life. That Jesus has given his life for us. That we could have new life in him. And it's not because of their own efforts. Because when you think in holiness and in terms of your own efforts. It's going to lead to despair or pride. But it's because of Jesus' efforts on our behalf. And given his life for our freedom. So that we could give our lives for him. And then demonstrate it in the way that we love others. In hard times, people start looking at circumstances around them. And they, they, I think sometimes we begin to wonder what in the world is happening. Is this the end? I mean, is, are things going to uh, be, be difficult until the end and Jesus returns? And, you know, when we think about things like that, I, I'm glad that circumstances might get us to consider God, right? Where is God in all this? For a moment, let's just imagine worst case scenario. Let's suppose that, that what we're going through right now and in our nation and around the world doesn't get better. Let's suppose for a moment circumstances get worse. What do you do? Does that change how you live for Jesus? If it takes a crisis to make your faith in Christ more serious, I'm thankful that something has arisen to, for any of us to consider to take our faith more serious in Christ. But why not in our lives walk with the same devotion to Jesus in adversity as in times of peace? That way, no matter the circumstance, our soul is always ready. Because our minds and our lives have been prepared to follow Jesus no matter what. Because we've considered the preciousness of what it means to be in him. And friends, whoever's watching this morning, I, I am no fool to think that everyone watching um, has the certainty that they belong to Jesus. So let me just say this. Jesus has already paid it all so that you can belong to him. He's died for your sins. But let me tell you, um, he's also king of kings and lords of lords, and he will judge all sin. Meaning, just because Jesus died on the cross doesn't mean everyone goes to heaven. The Bible calls us to bow to this king who's given everything for us. Heaven is the kingdom of this king. And he doesn't let you through, but through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. This king has come and given his life for you, and he's given you the opportunity to bow to him that you may have life in him forever. And from that moment, he shapes us new. And the question for all of us, whether we're believer or not, is, is, is your life surrendered to that king? And the holiness of who he is. To allow his goodness to shape your life. Because as you abide in him. 
you will bear much fruit. Make your life about living for Jesus. Whether it's a good day or a bad day, it won't change the circumstance to who you are in Christ because you belong to him. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.